Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly slash fortnightly movie podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. This week, we're looking at Chinatown. I'm Darren. I'm Andrew. And I'm Philip. And Phil is joining us again, having previously discussed The 400 Blows, um, Francis Truffaut's film, and also having recently been on the Dunkirk uh, podcast as well. So it's good to have you back, Phil. Good to be back. Thank you for having me. The first guest to be on the podcast three times. Yes! I know, we're, we're getting there. Actually, it's kind of interesting that we have you back for this one, because we had you on talking about the French New Wave, obviously, Truffaut's uh, 400 Blows. Mm. And in some respects, I think you could argue, the movie we're talking about today, which is Roman Polanski's Chinatown, is something of a spiritual successor to that in terms of, like, it's the influence, I think, of European cinema on American cinema in some ways, in that, obviously, Polanski's a European director, but also it came at a time when I think that Hollywood cinema was learning a lot from from European directors and European filmmaking. It was certainly trying to. Um, so you're talking, this was made in 1973, came out in 1974. So we're at an age where The Godfather has just come out. and Another, so- another Robert Evans. Another Robert Evans, yeah. The super producer, actually, because his name is listed You're on the credits. You're right, I am. Ba- back when, you know, this, I suppose that was kind of one of the hangovers of the kind of golden age, the original golden age of Hollywood, when um, producers had perhaps more of a say. But uh, Evans was kind of one of the last big ones, where his name would have been as big on the credits, if not bigger than the director. Well, that's exactly. His is the penultimate name that appears in the credits, hmm. right, right before directed by Ron Polanski. But even when we were watching the trailer last week, the trailer quite pointedly mentions a, a Robert Evans production, as if to say, yeah. look, you can trust us. Even if you don't know Polanski, even if you haven't seen Rosemary's Baby or you haven't seen Macbeth, mm. you can go and see this because Robert Evans says it's good. Well, first of all, I wouldn't necessarily market Chinatown on the evidence of, say, Macbeth. Uh, one of the reasons Evans seemed keen to hire Polanski was made to help him out a bit because his previous two films, uh, one of which was Macbeth, uh, were flops. Well, his previous two films came... We're going to probably talk a little bit about the history of this. His previous two films came after The Murder of Shannon Tate. That's right. I think think Macbeth was one of the less successful Playboy movies. Uh, (laughs) uh, We watched that in Leaving Cert... Or I watched that in Leaving Cert English as well, which was really, really... It's a very weird feeling sitting down watching a movie and seeing a Playboy production in an English classroom. Uh, Yeah, even though, you know, it's otherwise it is a very respectable and very well done... Shakespeare yeah. adaptation. I'm very bloody and very visceral, I think, as well. I think Polanski sort of talked about that, like wanting it to be bloody and visceral. And Again, violent. it was just after Sharon Tate's murder, so you can see how that May have fed into it. I was going to say bled in, but well, I have now. Yeah. Anyway. Because uh, Chinatown was the one that brought him back to Los Angeles. It was, which he was very reluctant to do, as you'd imagine. Of course, he lived there, she died there, and uh, yeah, it was not... It, it took a while for Evans to convince Polanski that he was on board. Polanski, initially, he did seem interested. He actually lobbied for Jack Nicholson to be in it. It seems that Robert Town, the screenwriter, he wrote the role of J.J. Giddis, the detective, for Nicholson, but he had to be persuaded. But even after getting Nicholson on board, Polanski seemed pretty reluctant. And so it took a while. It took a while to get everybody in place. And I mean, it's one of those films that had a famously troubled production, I believe, in terms of the... Yeah. I believe Town and Polanski locked themselves away for several weeks working on the scripts, but they had very visceral disagreements, which we'll probably talk about when we get into sort of discussing the film with spoilers. Hmm. But, like, it, apparently there are stories of, like, Polanski cutting and pasting the script to rearrange events and themes and ideas and beats. Which you'd wonder how it does... how they really did that, because it flows. Narratively, yeah. it just flows perfectly one scene into another uh now of course it helps that um Gittis, the lead character he's in every scene he's yeah. never absent 
Uh, so you just have this constant. Well, I mean, even you're, the... And you're linked to him. You're constantly following him, just following from one beat to another, from one And watching over his shoulder as well. Like, one of the things about Polanski's direction, which we'll probably talk about as well later on, is, is it puts you in a perspective where you are seeing things from Git's perspective. Like, there's a really mm. great scene early in the movie where he goes to visit uh, the house, the... the um, and, and he sees the, the groundskeeper basically going and investigating something in a pool, in a tide pool. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's a curious scene, but throughout the scene, you're watching it consciously over his shoulder. So you're seeing it from the way that he sees it with no context. You've gone moment. along with him. You've yeah, got that's... no idea. You are thrown, for lack of a better metaphor, in the deep end. And, and it works really well. It really, really does. I mean, Chinatown is, I would argue, one of the most influential Los Angeles films ever made. And I think Tom Anderson makes that case in Los Angeles Plays Itself. Hmm. the 2003 documentary in which he looks at the city as explored through fiction. Because, I mean, obviously, myself and Andrew talked about this on the podcast a bit as well. Like, Los Angeles, movies like to be about movies, understandably. People hmm. who make movies tend to be excited about movies. And, and you have stuff like La La Land, for example, which is a great love letter to it. But you also yeah. have stuff like The Player, for example. I think that... Or, say, L.A. Confidential, which is very much a spiritual uh, sibling to of, Chinatown. Of this, yeah. 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 Uh, what I, one thing I love about Chinatown is that it is very actively not about filmmaking yeah. at all. And uh, you know, it takes place in Los Angeles, which is the home of so much. Yeah, very, very, very. Like, like there's, there's one character who's an actress. Yeah, but and, I, and that's about it. That's it. Yeah, it's a, it's a cursory mention. Yeah, it is. And I mean, well, to be fair, I think there's also an element of like there, there is an element of wryness in I think casting, say, John Huston as as Noah Cross, for example, who would be more famous as a writer and director, I think, mm. than an actor. Absolutely. And even Polanski putting himself in in the film as well in a very small role and stuff like that. But yeah, I think you're right. It is a film about Los Angeles, not about Hollywood. Because you tend to, when you talk about Los Angeles film, you tend to focus on Hollywood itself. I think this is an interesting... Again, one of the points that I think Anderson makes about Chinatown and its history of Los Angeles, because we'll probably talk more about that later on, is that... We're going to say a lot later on, aren't we? We are going to say a lot later on. Because it is a, it's a twisty movie. It has lots of twists and reveals in it. And if you haven't seen it, I think very few people haven't seen it who will be listening to this podcast. But if you haven't seen it... It has a very nice mystery, a very logical, structured, flowing mystery. Hmm. Yeah. But it captures like mood very well. It captures ambience very well. It's it's very meticulously made. Oh, it feels, unquestionably. It feels like um, the second season of True Detective. Oh, although, no. although, <laughs> although people didn't like that, it feels like it, it got kind of like a certain amount of inspiration, certainly from 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 this sort of thing. And I I know that I know that Chinatown didn't invent. Well, this, this is this, this is Chandler this, and Hamlet and all exactly, this exactly. Sort of like, yeah, they well, didn't that that they didn't invent this genre, but that this is a kind of a a a, a very kind of relevant cultural touchstone for somebody who's who's making this kind of detective noir. I mean, we should we should be clear on this. Actually, Phil is very much the expert on Chinatown on this podcast um, <laughs> of the of us three people in yes. this room. Yeah, but I mean, maybe. you've actually studied it though. Like, not to, not to tell you so short. You you've studied this as part of your PhD, I believe. So you you PhD, know... you, you you flatter me, MA. But MA, you. apologies. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I learned through my own horn, PhD. Andrew feels Andrew feels yeah, lied to and betrayed. I. I, I, I this is the twist of our movie. Yeah. It's not a PhD. Was there somebody with a PhD who we were meant to guess? Or... Yeah, I'm so... I've been not in front of Phil. Phil, you are always you are always our first choice. Bless you. Bless you. Um, but um, okay, MA, which is more than either of us have, to be clear, Andrew. Yeah. All right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we're an MA, and you studied this as part of that. Yeah, we can we can get our proxy um, honorary MAs if we want. There's, yeah, that, that's we're just waiting on those honorary MAs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a script. Yeah, right there. Yeah. But um, 
So you you would have studied this, you would have been familiar with this. Like, what context? In what context? Just out of curiosity. Well, just as the idea of you, again, we're coming back to the time in which it was made, and so you're talking about nineteen early nineteen seventies, and in terms of the films that are coming out at the time. Okay, you have immensely prestigious pictures like The Godfather and Godfather Part Two, and then on the other hand, you've got. Uh, conspiracy thrillers are being very much uh, kind of uh, in the in the in zeitgeist yeah. in the zeitgeist so things like say the parallax view which came out the same year as this and godfather part two i always like to think of chinatown as being the halfway house between the two kind of sides there the prestige and the paranoia all rolled into well, one but it is because it was released in 1974 around the time of the watergate sounds i mean um evans has talked like this is covered a great deal in uh was it it's Easy Rider, Raging Bulls, which is the, the Peter, Peter Biskin's absolutely phenomenal history of the of Hollywood at the time of the era, which covers like from nineteen sixty nine to nineteen eighty. Yeah, and it covers this sort of era where you had these young pups coming up, like Francis Ford Coppola and stuff like that. And you yeah. had this sort of, um, but I mean, one of the of course Polanski wasn't one of those. Again, this is Evans trying to bring something different to the films that were being made at the time. Now, of course, Coppola did phenomenal work with The Godfather and and the likes of Apocalypse Now, but he uh, Evans felt that Polanski could bring a darker, more cynical edge to what is already a pretty dark and cynical script. To be fair, it, it's, it, it's it's very very cynical. <laughs> I mean, the most famous very part, dark, yeah. um, and and like from nihilistic. Almost. Yeah. nobody, nothing means anything. There is no good in the world that can prevail without getting too spoilery. And I guess from seeing Macbeth, which, <laughs> which has uh, a similar sort of yeah, vibe yeah. to it. And people, people say in instances like this, I think when we spoke about No Country for All Men, it's like, well, that's that's the uh, it's the um, subject matter. But it's the the director, Logan's holding a gun to their head, <laughs> saying, "Make this um, as bleak as possible." Yeah, yeah. It's like, no, you, you're, you're. You're obliged to choose this this, this, this subject matter <laughs> to develop. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, because this is one of the things they that... they they choose to do these kind of um, I guess bleak stories and and well, they're very good at it, so yeah. I mean, you can't blame them. Exactly. One of the things that I and again, this is something that I've sort of read myself. I think it may have been in, in Easy Rider, Agent Bulls, but it may also have just been in terms of interviews with Evans and in interviews with Town and stuff. Mm. Was that. Evans, in some respects, well, he wanted Polanski involved and he wanted that sort of flavor and edge and darkness. I think there was an argument early on that he wanted something that was a bit more like The Godfather. He wanted something that was a bit more classic and, and conventional in terms of storytelling and narrative. And yeah. I think and there was some conflict with Polanski who wanted something a bit rawer, perhaps. There's a thread here of in the making of Chinatown about a lot of conflict. And it just largely seems to be Polanski versus everyone else. So here's one example where Evans is looking for a more classical look, which would fit into the time the the time frame in which uh, Chinatown is set. So you're talking about mid nineteen thirties. You're talking film noir, for example. I think is a huge influence here, like that sort of stuff. Like exactly. Um, but uh, Polanski seems very determined not to play it as such. I kept thinking it was around when we were uh, talking about Dunkirk, and we were talking about actually Chris Nolan's remake of Insomnia. And one term that seemed to get bandied about, just kind of cheaply because it sounded clever, was uh, instead of fume noir, it was fume blanc because it was just so bright, even though it had all the other elements of kind of film noir in place. This is the ultimate fume blanc in that it is, you mean, you think of the, say, the limitations of film noir, or not the limitations, the uh, the conventions of film noir. 
Uh, this the is black a, and white design, for example. Exactly. The, 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 the Dutch lighting, angles. The, the lighting Dutch. on the scenery as much as the actors. Yeah. The, uh, what you refer to as the... Um, the diagonal camera lenses, the, the sort of diagonal sort of camera There's angle. a term I'm looking for here, and I have lots of notes, as you two will attest, because I'm just that... Phil violated the rule of the podcast by actually doing research and knowing stuff about the film that we're talking about. Yeah, I know. How dare I? rule. <laughs> Darren violates them all the time. He's no, very good I, at that. This yeah. is the podcast with the uh, with the footnotes. Remember? Yeah, yeah. Did the um? I I I feel it's my role not to research. So it's 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 You'll okay. You'll be the layman. That's yeah, okay. That's okay. Your, that's your for, job. For yeah, yeah, yeah. But even things like um, what you call compositional tension. Yeah. This is a term that uh, actually Paul Trader uses. If you read his, uh, if you re- read his conversations in Trader on Trader, he goes through film noir and looks at these uh, conventions. And one of them is that you generate tension not by moving the camera, but by always moving the elements within it. So you get things like where uh, Giddis is filming his, or he's shooting his quarry with a camera. But instead of cutting to them, you have a shot on Giddies. But you also see the camera lens and his quarry reflected in the lens. Yeah. It's all happening within the frame with very little movement. I but believe there was actually even some argument about that themselves. Or Polanski wanted the image flipped because obviously that's how it would be reflected in a lens. And I think Evans or somebody else involved wanted yeah. it basically portrayed as it was because it wouldn't make sense to the viewer. Like yeah. That's the level of argument and conflict that you have. Well, exactly. But this is what we're coming back to in that... Polanski just seemed to be wanting to make these particular decisions and Evans, well, whether it be Evans or Robert Town, the screenwriter, or his cast, wanting to do things particular ways and he's just kind of going against the grain and the traditional expectation of their demands or of film noir and saying, no, we're going to do this in a more, in a less idealistic way, put it that way, a less stylish way. Not that the film isn't stylish, but it's less stylized. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I like about Chinatown as a sort of a film noir, and it's been argued, and again, like this is one of the things when you talk about film noir, because it's, it's so it's so hard to classify, because people, some people argue that it's a, it's a style, some argue that it's a genre, some argue that you cannot physically have a colour film noir. Well, the, I think I think Chinatown just by existing will spade to that theory, but film noir is not a genre. If ha- we have to stress that. I mean, genre is largely dictated by the content, whereas film noir is very mu- much more about the form. It's about how you make the film as opposed to what the film's about. So like, this is a detective story. It's a crime thriller. Mm. It's um, Set during that era where you would associate these. I mean, one of the things about casting John Huston is Huston filmed a number of the, the really famous ones, like The Treasure of Sierra Yeah, there yeah. we go, that sort of stuff. Exactly. And I mean, one of the things that I like about Chinatown in that sort of milieu or, or sort of context is the fact that, like, one of the things about... And this is going to be kind of like vaguely controversial. One of the things, I'm not a huge fan of, or I'm not as big a fan of the golden era of Hollywood as a lot of people are, the 30s and the 40s. Okay. Um, and one of the issues that I, I take with it, or that, like, obviously I appreciate the impact of the films, the way that they shape the, the movies that we have today and everything like that. But it's it's the, romantic, the romanticization of, say, the Hayes Code and stuff like that. So you had a lot of film noirs where you couldn't actually talk about what you wanted to talk about. You had so to basically sort of no sex and no violence. No sex, no violence. But I mean, also even like playing down uh, like unpleasant ideas. Like, I think that one of the things I really like about Chinatown is that it explodes those. It feels like, I think Town has talked about this as the novel that Raymond Chandler would have loved to have written, but never could. Because of the constraints at the time. High praise, but then again, it's Chinatown, so we'll allow him that. We'll give him that one. But it, it's this idea of, it, it is a film noir, and it uses a lot of the conventions, but it's filmed in a way that wouldn't have been possible before the 70s. So you open, the film's opening shot is two people having sex. That's right, you, it's a, actually a photograph of them. So it's, a, it's like a camera looking at an image, 
Uh, it's looking at the image of these people. It's all very self-reflective. Yeah. Like you say, it is two people caught in flagrante delicto. Yeah, and it is nothing that you, you couldn't have got away with that while making a film. Noir. No, so I, and, and that's done... your opening shot. Yeah, so it, I think it, it's very much pushing outside the boundaries. I mean, even when you get to the heart of what the mystery is, like... If you were making this movie in, say, the 30s or 40s, you would have to dance around, say, the secrets of the Cross family, whereas Chinatown just lays them bare. That wouldn't have been possible no, because with... this script is just too complex and too messy. Yeah, and, and, uh, I really, and frankly, too horrible. I really, really like that about it because it takes a lot of the subtext that you associate with those films and just sort of just lays it out there in a way that is that makes it explicit and makes it something that you can't look away from and you can't ignore and you can't mm. choose to gloss over because mm. i mean andrew talked about how grim and nihilistic chinatown is and it is grim and nihilistic but it's unrelentingly so and i think that's where its power comes from i think that's what, what really sort of resonates with me and i wonder like there's an argument that chinatown in some respects killed the film noir um as, as a genre and that it made it impossible to do a classic film noir to do something sort of similar or that, like, when you were doing it, you were basically echoing Chinatown. I thought you talked about LA Confidential. Yeah. Like, there's there's arguments. I think Tom Tom Anderson in that documentary basically argues that LA Confidential is pretty much an attempted remake of Chinatown. It is an attempted remake. Uh, I now I love both films. I do. And to be now they uh, LA Confidential is as complicated as Chinatown. It's not as it's not quite as um, nihilistic. Yeah, nihilistic. Yeah. No, it has a bit more hope. Yeah. than Chinatown again wouldn't be hard oh, very and and it's 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 much more conventional I think it is but not in but not in a way that it feels neutered I mean it's still a film with its own share of violence and sex and uh, corruption and whatever yeah. else uh, it has the same kind of obsessions mm. it just um, well it's not pushing outside the it, box in the same way Chinatown was because, well, no, because the box was, it, well that's it it's Chinatown and everything else that came after yeah. now just the fact that Ellie Confidential is so brilliantly yeah. made and so wonderfully acted that's just it, it earns its compa- it earns mention in the same breath yeah but like I mean, you say it just cannot break the rules because they've already been broken and that was Chinatown yeah I mean we don't want to be too too harsh on it I, I love oh, that God, when, no. when we're doing this podcast it's like yes it's this movie that we're talking about is not as great as this other movie that we're talking about that is one of the greatest movies yeah. ever made as if that's that's like a, a you know we should have pointed out that LA Confidential is also on the 250 it is indeed it is, is and possibly higher than this it may be as well actually which is Maybe a little bit disheartening, but we can't complain no, too much. No, no, I, I won't it, complain. I, I mean, it's, it's not to denigrate it, but it's the 250. The IMDb 250. You mean you're not going to be back when we talk about the help, Phil? <laughs> I don't know, Darren. <laughs> I've never seen it, and how often you've talked about it. Um, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure if I'm all that keen. We'll, we'll pre-book you. Um, the Imitation Game, I believe, may also be coming back on soon as well. I hope we'll not. Keep you, we'll keep that one free for you as well. Oh, bless you. Well, with that in mind, then, having talked about the 250 and this movie's role on the 250, it's been on the 250 since inception, which is entirely understandable, since 1996 when the list was first produced. It's likely going to continue to be there for quite some time in the future. I don't see it dropping off anytime soon. I'd say Inception and the 250 in the same sentence. So there's too much confusion. <laughs> Between Inception on the 250. We are not discussing Christopher Nolan's motion picture, Inception. <laughs> yeah. We are talking about Chinatown. <laughs> yes, we are indeed. Um, but anyway, so I guess what, what I'm getting at is, Phil, would this movie be on your top 250 movies ever made? Personally, oh dear God, yes. Would you care to rank it, actually? Because that's a, that's a lot of certainty. We Normally guests are like, let me think about it. Give me some pause. No, I, I suppose you're wondering, is it in my canon? Well, hey. I hate that term so much. Um, well, that's another podcast. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, but if you're talking... We don't about, own that copyright. But in terms of, <laughs> but in terms of personal favourites, uh, top ten. Wow. Yeah. 
pretty amazing. I, I adore this movie as well. Actually, I'm not sure it'll make my top 10, but it is one of my all-time favourite films. And it, yeah, I just think it deserves to be. And Andrew, I haven't asked you yet, actually. So how do you feel about Chinatown? Yeah, I, I think it definitely deserves to be on the 250. I think it deserves to be on um, more than a lot of movies. I guess that we've covered. Um, I get, uh, you know, I, the episodes I've listened back to, we you arrive at that conclusion a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but to be fair, we haven't landed on the help yet. That's that's my threshold. Whenever anybody asks me, does a movie deserve to be on the two fifty? The question is, is it better than the help? And the answer is almost always yes. What's that Richard <laughs> Gere dog movie? Uh, Hatchie a dog's tail. Yes, which ah, is yeah. actually a remake. Ironically yes. enough. Yeah, may, I mean, maybe that's good. Uh, but uh, like, like I, I saw that um, Tom Hardy MMA movie. Oh, the Warrior film. Yes. And it was just Joel fine. Edgerton. It's it was, solid like, and it was, no more than grand. that. Yeah, like, but but it, it's in the two fifty and it, it's, it's. Yeah, really I was wondering why you mentioned that. that, that it's, it's not. It is. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's around about two twenty. It's around the prisoners sort of threshold. Oh, prisoners being the first one we covered. <laughs> and that is the sound mind. of Phil's dreams shattering there against the rock. Uh, I mean, also prisoners. Rush is on there as well, which gives us a connection to this movie because, as you pointed out, this movie features an appearance from Richie Cunningham's father. Uh, yes, uh, Rance Howard, the father of Ron Howard, Clint Howard, and any other Howards. Uh, the duck, maybe. Um, he's in there. <laughs> and, yes, he has a role as irate farmer, which we'll probably explain more when we actually get into the plot mechanics here. We will indeed. Well, with that in mind, then, um, if you haven't seen this movie, I guess it's pretty clear. If you haven't, what are you doing listening to this? Go! Off you go. go get it. Rent it. Buy it. God's yeah, sake, don't, go. Don't pretend that you don't have free time. You're, you're listening to, <laughs> you're a, listening to, to us. a podcast. It's like 20 minutes in. Yeah. You can pause it. We'll still be here when you get back. We're ones and zeros. We're always an internal. Yeah. All right. And we'll, 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 we'll see you in uh, two hours and ten minutes. Yeah, I think that's about right. Well, and I could think of worse ways to spend two hours and yeah. ten minutes. Frankly. And if you're wondering how can they see you, then read your terms of service. All right, well, with that in mind, we're going to segue gently into the spoiler zone. So, Phil, what is Chinatown about for you? God, that two hours and ten minutes just flew by, didn't it? <laughs> uh, what's it about to, to me? Yeah, so what, 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 what does it resonate? What, when you think of Chinatown, what do you think about it? What grabs you about it? What's, like, if you had to do like a one sentence, one paragraph, 100 word summary of Chinatown, like what is it that makes it a classic movie? What is it that makes it a film that you love? What is it that made you pick it when you did your MA? This is what um, it does to me every week, but you're actually prepared. I'm, <laughs> I'm prepared in that I have, I have a lot of factual answers, but he's asking for a personal opinion. <laughs> yeah. So okay. it's, um, it's it, well, I only... It, it, for, for clarification, it was a, just one of the films that was on this particular module of my MA, but I just happened to love it, so it suited me down to the ground. Uh, but what a way to worm the answer there, Phil. But the reason I love it is, well, it probably just says more about my general disposition, but it's the brightest, sunniest slice of film cynicism I can think of. Because here you have a tale set in brightest sunny california mm. almost entirely shot during the day very yeah. few scenes at night but it, despite all that this is a tale of corruption of uh, corruption of both resort of natural resources of government and of family and ending in the most heartbreaking way imaginable yet all still in that guise of 
it's like that it's line. It's always sunny. It, it's always sunny. It's like that line that Danny DeVito says again at the beginning of LA Confidential. Come to Los Angeles. The sun is bright and inviting and the orange groves grow as far as the, as the eye can see. And of course that plays more of a role in this film. Uh, the orange groves or the orange groves that aren't growing oranges as it were. Yeah, because the, the, um, the salt water is bad for glass apparently. The colours in this movie it's I wonder how much Robert Evans has, has to play in that because um, it is, like the Godfather... Well, he, that's it, like is is again a very colorful movie. Well, originally he wanted the cinematographer to be the cinematographer behind The Godfather. I believe he he didn't. wanted uh, Gordon Willis. Yeah. couldn't get him. Yeah. Um, he the eventual uh, photographer was John A. Alonzo, who did a marvelous job. Except when it went to processing and it came back, and Polanski saw the prints, he found that they were much darker and uh, sepia tinged and. Just that off-brown ochre colour that you'd expect. More like The Godfather, basically. And uh, he hated it. And when he found out that that was at Evan's direction, he said, the hell with that, and sent it back to the lab to uh, to be put back the way he wanted. So, yeah, like you say, it's nice and bright. Because, uh, you know, you go to Los Angeles, it is a bright, sunny city. And that's exactly what Polanski wanted because it served as a great contrast to the narrative and the themes they're in. Which is is really interesting because we talked a bit about this earlier about how, like, Los Angeles... I've never never been to Los Angeles. But I I feel like I've almost been there through the exposure, through the way it's treated on film. And one of the recurring themes of the way the cinema deals with Los Angeles is that the people who live there seem to hate it a lot. Well, between the excessive heat and the traffic snarls, apparently so, it's parking as well as that par- apparently uh, but that urban again, myth about nobody using public transport nobody walking in well they I, evidently they've all watched speed yeah they, like they seem to think like why can you walk when you can drunk drive i mean the only time they walk is when their cars get clamped as as per just casually goes to to drive home uh, like completely sozzled. <laughs> well, unfortunately, the uh, Chinatown does very little to rehabilitate that image of Los Angeles because, besides the fact that there's all this political corruption going on, I am sad to say that it is all that the the narrative about the corruption of the water supply is based on real events. It is. It's inspired by real events. I mean, Anderson covers this in, in Los Angeles Place itself. It's based on the land grab, basically. It's uh, it's an event that is uh, sadly known as the Rape of the Owens Valley, which is yeah. located to the northeast of the city. And basically what happened was between 1905 and 1912, water was appropriated from the Owens Valley and stored in an aqueduct which pleated the water supply to the farmers there and eventually 1924 thereabouts the stage of many revolts ended up in the dam of the aqueduct being blown up they did they were like throwing dynamites the water wars as, the, as they're known like it's, yeah. which sounds like something from mad max yes exactly but <laughs> charlie Saran was there at the front with her bionic arm yeah. loving the dynamite does this, does this not remind people of true detective <laughs> season oh. two I, I i know that people don't like to talk about no true I, detective I, I, I actually two. quite like true detective season two but i think it's it's more drawing Me into too, the... actually I, I i was wondering like is it that bad i mean it's no true detective <laughs> season one but but it does have but i mean i think it's more drawing from the pool of influences that chinatown has which is obviously like the pool dash of influences yeah see what i did there yeah, yeah sorry trying to make a bit of a splash culturally there's but also it's... this kind of like land kind of uh... grab well, i mean that's the myth of los angeles in general because like, it's one of the recurring themes about when you deal with los angeles in fiction right because los angeles 
occupies the political a... corruption as well and yeah Okay, yeah. well, let's deal with one of those at a time because I haven't got a thematic explanation <laughs> right. for the for the for pick the one to start. <laughs> but in terms of like a land grab, California represents the end of the West. It's the point at which the there's no more land left no, to grab. Yeah, it's the point at which manifest destiny reaches the unmoving ocean, the Pacific, which is so peaceful and calm and unyielding. In fact, there's some great shots in Chinatown of the water commissioner walking down to the edge of the Pacific Ocean and just staring out. At one stage, he's drowned as discovered there's salt water in his lungs, and people assume he drowned in the ocean. It turns out that he didn't, actually, but well, that's another theme of the film that, that kind of ties into the theme of family. But, like, California represents this idea, or seems to represent in the American psyche, this idea of the end of the West, the, the end of, like, this American dream. It's the point at which you've gone further and you can go, there's nothing more to claim, there's nothing more to discover. So it becomes this manipulation, this sort of place where people are disillusioned and broken, and this place where dreams go to die, which is ironic because Hollywood then becomes this industry that's built around fashioning this American dream, which ends up this horribly sort of cynical, sort of nihilistic... That probably corrupts those dreams more than any other. Yeah, so you have this sort of fascinating contrast. Like, I mean, even... It's a town... desert as well. It mm. is a desert. It's called, like they talk about in the meeting where they talk about like Los Angeles stranded between an ocean full of water that they can't drink and a desert that's moving in from the east. Yeah. Like it, it basically seems like this sort of apocalyptic hellscape. I mean, even when Gittes goes and visits the riverbed, it's like a kid walking around on horseback with like broken dressers and like signs washed up. And it's like, it is like something almost from Mad Max. When Ned, Ned Flanders imagines uh, his his children moving, or, or his family moving to Los Angeles and his kids have become agents. Um, <laughs> and, and they're talking about, it's like, would you like to see, a, would you like to go see a football game, Ned? There's no team. <laughs> but, but it is, like there is this sense that like it's where... I, th I, th I think they have someone now, don't they? I think they have like the, is it the, the Ravens? Or? Was it not Los Angeles that bought um, Beckham over? I thought that he worked... He no, no, I thought, I'm talking about it. Oh, uh, sorry, football. Uh, oh, sorry, American football. football. The real football. Thank you very much. I didn't think, but I didn't think people went for football in California. I thought they were all about basketball. Hmm. Well, they, 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 they. I think they, um, they like the uh, Raiders for, for from 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 Oakland. Okay, fair enough. Um, like in 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 parts of LA. I suppose I just thought. No, it's Snoop Dogg's team. Fair enough. <laughs> and that's enough and, for us. And Andrew brings brings. Uh, yeah. Cal what is his name? Calvin Broadus. Is that um, his birthday? Might be. All right. <laughs> We're not going to check that. Show yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ironically enough, Chinatown does star one of the Los Angeles Lakers, the basketball team's biggest fans, Jack Nicholson. In fact, yeah. that was one of the reasons of conflict. Uh, Nicholson used to have a portable TV on set to watch games between takes, and Polanski got so frustrated at him holding up the shoes, he actually broke the TV once. Well, I mean, Nicholson famously has the rider in his modern contracts after he became even bigger, where he would be allowed to skip out and go to see the games. Like, you couldn't schedule shooting around the games because he wanted to attend them all. This I'm, is, I'm, sure, I'm sure Nicholson was annoyed about that. He was probably like, geez, Polanski, what made you such a... <laughs> so, so angry. <laughs> yeah. mm, I wonder. Yeah. Well, I mean, to be fair, Nicholson had wanted to work with Polanski for a long time. They just yeah, they were for... trying to get a project together for years, but they could never find anything. And uh, it was only when Evans presented Polanski with Chinatown he realised that this was the project that could work. Yeah. And now when you think of... I mean, you think of Jack Nicholson now, and I don't necessarily mean right now. I mean, okay, say the accumulated knowledge we have of Jack Nicholson over the last 30 years. You know, you think of Mad Jack and his womanising ways and whatever. 
The ironic thing is that J.J. Giddies, which to me is one of his best roles and his best performances, Absolutely. and probably one of the, possibly his finest film. And it's a very Jack Nicholson role. Is it? it is. I, I, well, it is. I it is. He just, does he just imbue it with that? Because I'm, I'm He's sure smirking in, in the scene direction, I don't know if, like, because he has a lot of great lines, but I don't know if in every scene it's like... Giddies um, enters Giddies is enters smirking. smirking. Oh, there's <laughs> not a... There's not a lot for him to smirk about in this necessarily. <laughs> that, there is a lot of Jack in that, in just yeah. that well, grin. That and, and even the bit way. where he's telling the joke about the Chinaman, yeah. uh, where he, after he hears the barber and he goes back to the Oscar repeated, like that's the Joker laugh from Tim Burton's Batman. And that, that's yeah, just basically just Nicholson letting loose. And it's about the only scene in the film where he really gets to do that. Yeah. And But what I find so ironic about this is that, yeah, Jack can come in, bring all that uh, charisma and that manic energy that he has to it, and yet you're dealing with, you're talking about a character who ultimately has none of the qualities that you would associate with a Jack Nicholson character having. I mean, he ultimately... He's innocent. He's not he evil, evil almost. No, he is uh, continually... He's, he's been accused of a lot of things. <laughs> that's not one of them. He's not guilty of them. Yeah, the thing is that this is a character who is forever on the outside looking in. He's always behind everybody else in terms of the information he has. And that's one of the wonderful things about putting the audience alongside Gitties and that we're just finding out the information as he gets I it. I believe that was a change Polanski made. Town originally had the story narrated by Gitties, uh, thank I think. goodness. This is one of the best changes that could have been made in the film. Is that, and again, it is a, a, removing another of the conventions of film noir. No narration. Yeah. Which is great because... Um, just you don't need them uh, well, it, it yeah. ups the tension and it treats the audience like adults it treats yeah. you to follow along and I mean Polanski's direction is we'll, we'll talk about it more later on but it's really great like it's very good at conveying information visually so for example when he goes to the water commissioner's office and he sees the photo of Faye Dunaway there that's like okay you know that that's definitely his wife you know that's that's not an actor impersonator there's a moment where he's, and, re- he's looking at the picture of Noah Cross yeah and then the camera pans down to the letter he has with the C in the middle of the name you're like Ah, uh, that's Evelyn's father. That's what the C. That's what the cross is. Yeah, you can. It, it allows you to put two and two together. Uh, I also love that shot when it goes to the picture of Faye Dunaway as Evelyn Cross Mulray on her husband's desk. Because not only does it give you that information about the relationship, it also lets you know that he, whatever about the accusations about his alleged affair, he still loved her. Yeah, there's. It's just the little things you can read into everything. The film is just so full of those. But to come back to um, the Jack Nicholson character, to Giddies. Apart from being behind, well, sorry, um, isn't yeah. it? Isn't it that it turns out he never had an affair? Well, there's some no, discussion exactly. about that. Yeah, it, did, it, did he have an affair or not? I know that Evelyn was happy with the relationship. Like, was it just a? Was it like? Was he a surrogate father figure? I think was more surrogate father. There really was no evidence that he ever had an affair. With no, her. that like because because that that would be almost like if 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 you're going to reveal that that uh, Evelyn and Catherine. her and and Noah have have um, child, yes. and, yeah and 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 it's her sister and her her daughter and i didn't even then, have to slap him to get him to say yeah, yeah then at that point you could probably have like just throw in as well that she was also being but no no the, no the, the thing the thing about him is that he's a thoroughly decent uh, yeah man. It, and he's completely powerless yeah Hollis mulray he's yeah. the one absolutely uh uh, the, the one character who has complete scruples. He is. He knows what he wants. He knows I, what he's about. He is completely. Um, he, he is an angel, basically. In I don't know. Angel. I get the sense that, like, when you talk about Giddy's and the way he says, like, I'm innocent, and everyone accuses him. And like, one of the things that 
gitties that you get about gitties is he talks a good game about being cynical where he's all like you know you know you're not rich enough to get away murder all this sort of stuff yeah but like on where he seems like he's on top of stuff but like you get the sense that with chinatown when he gets involved in this thing with with evelyn mm. um there's a sense that he really cares about her in one sense. And there's also a sense that not only does he care about her now, it's not like this is an exception. Mm. This is a repetition of what happened in Chinatown. Because she's like, you know, what happened in China? I got involved in something I didn't understand. Yeah. And there was a girl. And the and wonderful like, thing about that story is we never actually find out the complete nuts and bolts. Only he and Detective Escobar really know what happened there. Wait for the prequel coming in 2019. <laughs> but I mean, I do. And that's what I like about the movie. It leaves these gaps and these lacunas that you can sort of explore. And, and you can and, fill them in in your own time. Yes. Yeah. Again, it's yeah. treating the audience with respect and enough as adults, which yeah. is which is remarkable because again, this is the product of the seventies where you had these films that were aimed at like adults. And and I, at, I, I really liked as well that everyone in this movie kind of has a backstory, pretty much. But it's like, not over explained or over elaborated. No, no. You, but you get a sense that they existed before the film started, and, and we'll many continue. of them will continue to exist after the film. Not all of them. Not no, all of them. Sadly, sadly. not. But um, there is, and there's this this rich image, and like and you, and, and also. Like there's a few who maybe you would like to not see <laughs> continue into the future who sadly will um, indeed in perpetuity. Uh, just uh, by but he's respectable. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes. uh, but has anybody here ever seen the sequel? The Two Jakes. Yes, mm. I have. What? The Two. Uh, well, this is Robert Town imagined um, the it's film as a trilogy, right? So the first okay. one was obviously going to be Chinatown. Second one was going. So first they, one was China. First one was Chinatown. Really? So he wanted to do. He wanted to build a trilogy around, around the history Giddies. of Los Angeles, around yeah. Giddies. So basically, he saw the history of Los Angeles as the exploitation of three resources. The first one was water, which is obviously what you see in Chinatown. Second one was oil, which was the Two Jakes. And mm. uh, the Two Jakes had an interesting and checker production history because obviously it was intended to be directed by Polanski, but that fell through when Polanski, obviously, immediately yeah. following Chinatown, was forced yeah, into exile yeah, with... Yeah, because he's a European producer... Uh, sorry, because he's a very European director, he prefers to spend his time in Europe. Um, yes, no, he yes. is a convicted criminal um, <laughs> yeah, on, the well, on the run, basically. So, like, let's no. not gloss around this. No, but I'm, anyway. I'm, I'm, I'm being facetious. Yes, yes. we've noticed. But, um, so, <laughs> but if, that, interestingly that enough, the, uh, Nicholson took the reins. He did. Well, the, I think the argument was originally Town wanted to direct it, but it fell, like, during pre-production, fell into a mess. It did. And I think Nicholson took over. And I believe that then basically caused a rift between Nicholson and Town. Yeah, it's a pity because, again, there was potential for this. With Town at the script again, it would give you hope, but it's just nowhere near as effective. No. And, uh, but it's not bad on its own terms. No, I mean... But... Like I've it, never it, heard of this. It's it, the same way that... Like, yeah, it yeah. came out in 1991. Same way that Rocky 2 and Rocky 3 aren't necessarily and who, terrible. And who's in it? Um, Harvey Keitel. Harvey Keitel is the other. Harvey jerk. Keitel, Meg Tilly, Madeline Stowe. and Nicholson. And Nicholson. Nicholson right. is starring and directing, and it basically. Okay. So the idea was Town envisaged a trilogy: one about uh, one about water, one about oil. The third one was going to be about land. It was going to be at the interstate, the development of the interstate. Mm. Right. And what's interesting about this, and I actually I love this fact, um, is the fact that you can still complete the trilogy if you squint a little bit and say, okay, the first movie is Chinatown because that deals with the the you know the reclamation of, wa of water and the manipulation of like water to help build Los Angeles and develop mm. Los Angeles. Second one is the Two Jakes. That's about oil and the way that that was manipulated and grabbed. Third one is Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Because ah. that's also about like demolishing the land to build the interstate to feed the city. Um, you can sort of make that loose connection. I suppose you could. You, you, I like the way it feels like you could. You probably shouldn't. Well, you no, could. probably not. Probably not. Just uh, yeah. But it Ooh. is like it's an interesting sort of exploration. Jack Nicholson is, is that's like one. Jack of Nicholson his, is a cartoon anyway. One of his big regrets 
is that he did <laughs> that they gave the role to Bob down. Hoskins yeah. in in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think that there's something sort of interesting because Town has talked about like Town grew up in Los Angeles, hmm. and it was like, and even like you mentioned, this is based on sort of inspired by real events. Like he he talks about how when he read these histories of those like of those water wars and stuff like that, he got the feeling that somebody understood California as he had the smell of eucalyptus in the air. Hmm. One of the things he talks about when he talks about Los Angeles is he gets the sense that it. You, it's always sunny. There's minimal seasonal change. So you have this sense in Los Angeles that time doesn't exist. That mm. it's almost a perpetual... Perennial out. summer. That is exactly. And then even, like, you obviously you have an industry where age is, is discouraged, where people try and pretend to be perpetually young and all this sort of stuff. But, like, one of the things I like about Chinatown is it captures that sense of timelessness. Because there's a sense of, like, almost immortal sin. Because one of the things about Chinatown is it's obviously about the water grab. And at the same time, it also reflects Watergate as well. Ironically enough, it's the the movie could arguably be seen as the original Watergate, if you will. Oh. But it is um, it's sort of it landed at the perfect time in terms of people's mistrust and government. You talked about like you covered the Parallax View, for example, oh. as well at the same time as this. Yeah. Um, and this sort of sense of people not trusting authority and government and stuff. And I feel like Chinatown sort of tapped into that perfectly. It's interesting because it's it's not about people who don't trust government. It's that they want to, but. There are other forces at play, like whether it's, a, I think early on in Giddy's office, you can see a framed portrait of FDR. And, and even you at, see the meeting. at the meeting. At the city hall meeting, yeah. where they're discussing building this new dam. Uh, right there, in huge, hovering above this meeting, is this portrait of FDR. Yeah, obviously the New Deal, stuff like that, because it's, it's set during this, when Yeah, was this was when to... uh, the New Deal was finally seeing some results. Yeah. And, it yeah, so on. you've got kind of government and people trying to run their affairs that that's that that is kind of the overarching and you have even like mulray for example is arguing that like water belongs to the people and so it should be something that's handled by government rather than private companies yeah people are trying to put uh certain resources back in public hands but then there's always these one these individuals who are trying to take things that really shouldn't belong to them and put their own stamp on it and make it their own. And unfortunately, the character of Noah Cross just does that in the most horrible way. Well, no, Noah Cross is a fantastic character. A horrible human being. Fantastic character. Because he's got, like... There's a sense watching the movie that obviously it's about the, the Los Angeles crisis and obviously it reflects Watergate and stuff like that. But Noah Cross almost seems bigger than that because he talks about how he's old and he's become respectful. But even his name... like Politicians, old buildings and whores all become respectable if they last long enough. But he's got, like, the name, like, Noah Cross, which is, like, Noah... Biblical implications. Yeah, that's exactly. Noah and the Flood, you know, and Cross, the Crucifixion, all this sort of stuff. Like, you get the sense that he's been around forever. And even at the end of the film, like, Andrew alluded to this, when he talked about, like, at the end of the film, there are people who die that you don't want to die, and there are people who live who you really don't want to live. He's one of those people who you want to die. And there's a point where Evelyn shoots him, and she she, she clips him in the arm. Like, he barely stumbles back. He's like, oh, Mm. well, that jacket's ruined. Um, It's like, oh, I was... I have a sudden pain in my left arm. Am I having a heart attack? Oh no, it's okay. I'm just screenshot. Yeah. Uh, but it's uh, luckily that my heart isn't pumping at the moment. Yeah. But it's all through the film. There's lines. There's references to you know. What about the water supply? Oh, he owns it. Or, just let the police handle this. He owns the police. There is, and there's even like early in the film, like one of the things that Towns talked about is like he acknowledges that Polanski made a better movie of his script than his script was, which I think is very magnanimous as a writer. Because I think you see, like we talked about Stephen King on this podcast, and Stephen King has oh, this, you. yeah, has this really big thing where he's like, no, my, my original novel was pretty great, um, so let's make a miniseries. So that Town, reminds me that remake of Ish is due in your cinemas this September. Maybe. But um, Town basically, like one of the, one of the things that he regrets being deleted is at the start when Curly is talking to. Um, 
Crowley's in the office and he's really upset when he finds out that his wife's cheating on him. This is the first uh, client this, that we meet. Yeah, this is the opening scene. Like, obviously, the, the sex photos lead to this. And he's talking about how angry he is and all this sort of stuff and how he feels betrayed and all this sort of stuff. Uh, there's a deleted bit where he references, like, he's going to kill her. And in the original script, Gittes says, you're not rich enough to get away with murder. And that, that's even why when you cut back to the scene, you get this conversation about, look, I didn't mean anything by it. I'm just saying I understand that you can't pay all at once. You're a man of means. I don't want to squeeze you and all that mm -hmm. sort of stuff. But it sets up this theme that runs throughout the film, which is like, if you are rich, you can get away with anything. anything. Like there, that human life has a price, that there is nothing yeah, the, more powerful yeah. than money. Like, and even the conversation with Cross where Nicholson asks basically like, look, How you're, much worth, are you worth? you're worth more than 10 No million. idea. Yeah. Are you worth more than 10 million? Oh my goodness, yes. Uh, John Euston is a guest on this podcast right now. I never said it was a good impression. It's actually a really good impression. But anyway, um, but there is... And you then, just like, have this wonderful way of talking. You just want to try and impersonate it anyway. Right. It's, Thank you. It's, yeah. But what could, like, what could you want from this? And his response is the future. The future, Mr. Yeah. Gitz. Yeah. <laughs> the future. That's also, where we're going. We don't need roads. And also I, notice that, you know, he steals so far if he can do what he wants. He could pronounce Gitty's name however he wants. He doesn't care. He will wander and stamp all over anybody to get what he wants. Yeah, and even though he doesn't need it, it's just the, the, this level of like acquisition and power. Like, because mm. again, the idea is that he's he's like he's feeding Los Angeles the monster that wants to grow. And one of the one of the interesting criticisms that Anderson Tom Anderson makes of Chinatown, because he's talked a lot about it, is that he argues that like its treatment of the water crisis uh, or the treatment of the water wars and stuff like that presents that as like the root of like a few corrupt individuals like cross hmm. and his argument is that no actually what happened really was the city of los angeles itself sat down and decided that it was comfortable doing this and so by it was systemic yeah by creating this image of cross you you sort of you create like a monster that you can hate and a representation of something that like takes the blame off the city itself i don't think that's fair because i think watching chinatown you have this wonderful sense of like pervasive corruption like there's this really great recurring motif where there's a cold running through the police department so like lou has oh, it obviously yeah. and the coroner has it as well he's got a summer cold that won't oh, go away and there, we, we we had inappropriate smoking this movie has lots of inappropriate smoking yeah. to bring back a classic 250 sort of uh, there's a point where Giddish is smoking and throws his cigarette butt in the water there's a scene where the coroner is walking around presumably with lots of formaldehyde there's also inappropriate eating and drinking in that scene as well <laughs> where they're wheeling out bodies out of the um out, out of the uh, morgue out of the morgue and you can see a guy in the background like, with a sandwich and a coke yeah like like almost like taking a little small flag out of his sandwich <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you're talking about the consolidation of this kind of image of monstrous power and evil yeah. in the form of cross but that's what chinatown does so well in general because it's taking events of the past putting them in a future date to uh, which is still in the past but using them as a kind of broad commentary on the present again set in the 70s well, that's exactly because it has this it has this sort of wide-ranging almost like it almost feels like a commentary on, on human nature because it's one of those films that is about a specific thing but, but also weirdly universal it is timeless because i mean like even the stuff that it talks about like it's not as if privatization of public resources is a problem that only existed oh, in the 30s like, like robocop yeah. <laughs> another 250 sort of staple um <laughs> even though it's not in the 250 uh, yeah no, we're, andrew's working on this um, in 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 the, my typical lazy way of doing nothing like happen um <laughs> yeah yeah but uh, i feel but i do feel like that's the power of chinatown is that like it, it touches on this idea of corruption there is this idea of corruption because there is like there's a sense that everybody enables. Cross may be evil and corrupt, but he's enabled and abetted by almost the entire town. The entire system is uh, 
conspiring in his favor, whether they know it or not. Well, I mean, well, that's the thing. Like when Gittes is talking about wanting to sue, um, he's when he's talking about like wanting to sue, um, like his his advisors are also saying, well, look, in that situation, the guy you're suing is going to be having lunch with the judge during the trial. Like there's a sense that the entire system is weighted in such a way that it's it's anything that anybody can try to do that is in any way decent or good or right is going to fall, fall through the cracks and they're yeah. going to be wrong. And uh, Gitties is the ultimate example of that. All the time he is trying to help Evelyn and he's trying to uh, get her out and try and solve this case. At the end of the day, the case overwhelms him and she dies. Yeah, it is It is horribly, horribly bleak and cynical. The fact that he tries to help almost makes the situation worse. So you can't argue, like you could argue that it doesn't make it worse. All it does is it just exposes it and doesn't make any difference whatsoever. But like the worst case scenario... And unfortunately, that's the most positive spin you can put yeah, on. Yeah, is that, is that it changed nothing. The, the worst spin you can put on is that it actually made things worse. Yeah, because at like, least if he, he hadn't, Evelyn at least might have survived. Yeah, or, or uh, Cross may not have found Catherine, for example. Yeah. Which is, is really, really, really bleak uh, and uncomfortable. Upsetting. It really is. When uh, the movie ends with this monster, say, uh, like a uh, 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 child molester and a rapist and a, and a, 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 a of, of, of his own daughter, taking away his... His daughter, his daughter, and, daughter and granddaughter. And granddaughter mm. to, to, that's not a... A happy a, ending. No, no. Um, but one thing, let's, let's talk about this, because like... The, the primordial themes, because obviously it's about water, it's about land, it's about all these resources, it's about the history of Los Angeles, stuff like that. But it's also, and Town has talked about this, one of the innovations in what he felt that Polanski did with the script was the structure that he imposed on it was that he structured the revelations so that first you have the water mystery, then you segue from the water mystery onto the land mystery, discover it's actually a land grab. Mm. And then in the film's final third, you get from the land into the incest, into the discovery of the Cross family's like weird, perverse, like the horrific abuses that are taking place within it. Mm. And one of the things that I, I like about it is that they it's peeling it it's, so neatly. They dovetail so neatly, and it's peeling an onion. Like, because you know that the water is the water crisis is very specific to Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Then you dig down the land grab is basically like in some ways the fundamental American myth. It's the idea of the European settlers coming and taking something that, that they wasn't believe already owned. Yeah, that they believe is rightfully theirs. Mm -hmm. um, and then you peel back even further, and it's a more primal abuse of a man like hurting the the people more in the like town. Like an avocado, there. People always say it's like layers of an onion. I, like aside from the skin of an onion, all the layers are the same. That's <laughs> but eventually you end up with you end up with nothing at the center. You end up with like I'm a firm believer that avocados are a fat. <laughs> what what about toast? That is the yeah. real question here. I like the fact that Andrews establishes the one podcast. Take off the wrinkly skin and there's the soft flesh underneath. But beneath that, there's a hard um, uh, stone. Do you, do you want to try that core. metaphor then with that? Is the stone core incest in this example, Andrew? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to stretch that particular incest metaphor. Incest is the but... bit that you throw out. <laughs> but like that, that's the thing, is that like, the deeper that you delve into Chinatown, the worse the, it gets. And because, the more primal it gets as well. Like. And you talk, because you're talking about incest, which in a in that kind of structuralist kind of way, is it's the last taboo in a yeah. kind of societal way because yeah. you know via that you're undermining your own kind family of unit. And, family unit yeah. and and it's and your societal bond but it's and, also and it's a minor yeah. as well yeah yeah, I, 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 yeah. Um, just, and, to, just to keep piling on the misery and yes and it's also not only like a minor which would make it statutory rape it's also quite clearly just rape um because there's a point where cross like accuses gittes and says like well, you, it's always you will, rape but, yeah, yeah statutory rape yeah. Yeah. like gittes is like you will uh 
which you know let, let's not get all Polanski on this but it's like there's a no. point where um where sort of where Cross like says to get is you will never understand that in the right time and the right place a man is capable of anything which is the most which is weird he's trying to excuse himself he's like oh I well, I think more than particularly weird, considering that, as, as Jack has already pointed out, he's rich enough; he doesn't have to because he will get away with it. But I think that's that's more like arguing that like the cross's greed is so primal and, and so, so basic, yeah, that it can't; it doesn't even extend beyond land or money or the future. It goes right Into down his to his own family. And I think one of the things that's interesting about this is the way I think the film, in some ways seeds this idea of, of incest early in the movie in terms of because like it's the the water company is originally owned by cross and Mulray. Yeah. So there's already sort of a suggestion of incest and impropriety when when you discover that evelyn married her father's business partner who is part of like a corporate family almost yeah. and then you you have the suggestion that catherine is evelyn's sister before you find out that she's her daughter so there's this insinuation that that Mulray might have been having an affair with his wife's sister, with his sister-in-law. It's all very and, improper in its own way before you even then, get to the truth. Yeah. And then you sort of, you pull it back and it's like, and that's just when, when I talked about why I like this as a film noir is the sense that it lays bare things that you could never have gotten away with in the Hays Code. Because yeah. you could maybe have gotten away with one layer of that. You could probably got away with sort of the, the, the implied creepiness of her dating her father, or her marrying her father's business partner who's basically her uncle. Yeah. But you wouldn't get deeper uh, than I mean, that. that's not for us to judge. But Oh no, in this case it <laughs> Very much is this the 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 scandal of it, like with, with the tabloidization of it, yeah, really. yeah, yeah, which of course just fed into the greed of Noah Cross yet again yeah. because that was a setup. And I mean, there's this whole idea then that like the whole system is is riddled and corrupt and almost incestuous to the point where like like the incest becomes a metaphor because obviously you have this level of corruption of people who all know each other and commingle and sort of keep things within that. Like so, you have. This idea of like people who will basically control all of Los Angeles, who control the water already, who are aiming to control the land and the growth of the city, and you have like instead of having this distribution of wealth, which is sort of this idea of like the you know the, the democratization of it, hmm. you have this idea of it becoming concentrated in this very small group of people who are like metaphorically incestuous, and as the film eventually reveals, literally hmm. incestuous. Hmm. And I think it's just it's a very powerful visceral metaphor. It is just this horrible idea of people and institutions becoming infected with foreign ideas and bodies that really shouldn't be there. Which, okay, so you have Evelyn having to bearing and raising her own father's child, but as well as like you have like um, Hollis uh, when he's found, he's found in um, he's found in a freshwater lake, but of course he's found to have salt water in his lungs. Yeah. So there's something something's gone wrong there. But he's and then it turns out he's drowned in his own tide pool as well, which mm. m- so the the murder initially seems like it's a big vast conspiracy and the suggestion he was drowned in the Pacific. But, but eventually he just drowned at home. Yeah, he was drowned in his own tide pool by his father-in-law. Mm. And there, there's 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 so many threads like that in the movie, these subtle kind of um where there's nothing kind of introduced where it's where it's completely new and not foreshadowed. And 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 there's 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 all of these nice little little links, even silly things like with um sorry you said his name a moment ago the um Mulray uh, yeah where where Hollis Mulray um where Hollis is like missing a shoe and then and then um, Jack Nicholson is also missing he, a he shoe. loses the same yeah and and the, careful kids watch those sleuths <laughs> if you don't drown you will lose a shoe 
the and and the um I think like the similarities Mulray having this experience where 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 which has kind of um changed his mind about things and and soured him um similarly to 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 the way Gettys has. Yeah. Like with the um, his own experience in China, yeah, for example, yeah. and, and what happened in the film. I mean, it is it's very it's very very meticulously and carefully constructed. Like yeah. it's, it's it's structure it's, is amazing. Its structure is amazing, and the way that it unspools like naturally. Like I mean, because with a voiceover narration, it would have seemed horrible and pretentious and clumsy and awkward. And uh, I what you were saying about um, the golden age of Hollywood and some of its conventions. That's one I've never been particularly fond of and this will sound like sacrilege now but uh, I'll say join Sunset, us Phil join us Sunset Boulevard I love that film except for the narration it drives me batty I just keep thinking William Holden you're a great actor but shut up well I mean yeah and it, it's not even like it, it died off I mean you had to come back with obviously Blade Runner for example as the famous like Harrison Ford doesn't care mm. uh, voiceover for example <laughs> like you have like and, and, and even people playing with it like Scorsese in Casino where the narration never stops and he knows that that's the that part of the point is that it's annoys you. It's excessive. It's purposefully there to. Well, Scorsese loves a, a, a classic a, Hollywood. Like yeah, a, he does a, a voiceover. Yeah, like I mean, Goodfellas as well. It's all yeah. over and things like that. But just in that particular example, it is just so excessive that it actually feeds into the film's point. But it, it, um, yeah, it's certainly even even in Scorsese, it feels kind of cheesy. Yeah, but yeah. I think that's probably just now. That's kind of the association we have with it. How well he makes it work, I think, is just. Depends on how often he chooses to use it. So yeah. In Goodfellas, you have some, but it's not all the way through the film, like in Casino. But again, yeah. it's in Casino. In Silence, well. it's smothering. For example, in Wolf of Wall Street, it's quite good because it's a perspective. Thing. Yeah. Like it's, and like I think that, yeah, it does vary from film to film yeah. how effectively he, he uses it. But I also think he, he uses it a lot better than a lot of other uh, voiceover mm. um, stuff. And I think that, yeah. Because Wolf of Wall Street it, it does, does a lot of interesting unconventional things that you wouldn't associate with a with a martin scorsese movie like i i, I, I love the bit where where he's doing like a promo and, he's and then the cops arrive yeah. yeah which doesn't which 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 feels like a, an another director i almost. don't know i i would argue that's that would feel very much in keeping with scorsese's so tendency too. to blend i think it's just it's the kind of thing that a lot of other directors have done since but originally learned from scorsese pt anderson say yeah well, I mean, it reminds me even of stuff like Say King and Comedy, which is obviously sort of blurs the, the line as well. But I mean, even even like even Goodfellas, where the characters talk to the camera and you have that shot of Pesci at the end. I think Scorsese, well, I like this. Welcome back to the, the podcast on Chinatown. <laughs> We're going to talk a lot about Martin Scorsese. Tangents. Because it's awkward talking about Roman Polanski. Yeah, it, it is. It is very awkward talking about Roman Polanski. But so I mean, let's talk about his film then. Yeah, that's, I think that's a, that's a good policy as well. Because one of the things that I really like about Chinatown is the attention... Like, because we talked about how carefully it's constructed and elaborately it's constructed. The attention to detail in certain parts of it. And one of the things is, like, Town actually interviewed a host of Private Eyes, and particularly Private Eyes, who would have been working in the 30s and 40s when the film was set, mm -hmm. to find out their methods and how they work. So, like, for example, a lot of the stuff that Gide's does, 
And the film pays a great deal of attention to how Gittes does what he does, which is, I really like. I'm a big fan of procedural work in film. I think the Coen brothers do it very well, for example, as well, mm. in their work, where they'll pay attention to how you do a thing because they understand that one of the joys of cinema is watching characters do stuff. So you may as well have them yeah. do something interesting. And, like, you get to watch Gittes be a private eye. So you get to see him, like, the watch under the car wheel to see what time somebody leaves. Yeah, the tail lights. Uh, breaking the tail light to follow, for example. Having the snapshot in the boat where you're shooting a partner. All of these little details came from uh, town from real talking. PI. Yeah, from talking to real PIs. You imagine um, the two the two men in in the in boat the, taking in photos 1930s, of each other yeah. in 1930s. Los Angeles is very waiting at the at the jetty line kind of <laughs> <laughs> to, well, to take them to the. To, uh, Los Angeles was very tolerant in the 30s. The Vice Squad. But it is like, and, and even, I also like to imagine that when somebody gets the bill, they're like, you spent $400 on stopwatches. <laughs> um, like, what the hell were you doing? But Stopwatches were a lot more readily available back then, I suspect. But I, I, like, I like that. And there's a lot of stuff that Polanski does where he understands that you visually watching something is interesting. As long as the thing you're watching is interesting, you will happily watch it. So you get like that extended scene where Gehes goes to the, the Crossable Ray residence and you have the groundskeeper notice the grass in the pool and fish it out. And that scene goes on for a good 90 seconds almost. Yeah. Because you're just watching a piece of detective work. Yeah. But as well as that, you know there's an important piece of the clue. Uh, important will clue be in there. the puzzle yeah. is there. But it's, it's also... I'm mixing my metaphors again. Important clue in the puzzle, important piece of the clue. <laughs> what? <laughs> Wake but, up. Uh, but it is, it's got this sort of amazing attention to detail in there. Apparently, one of the things I read, uh, and we're again talking about Polanski again, is that after Tate was murdered, actually, he did a lot of investigating himself before they caught the Manson family, before they identified the Manson family as the killers. He apparently would do stuff like sneak into his friends' houses and his friends' cars and, like, search for photos or records. And, like, he would take stuff looking for fingerprints, for example. Uh, and he would take... He famously took a handwriting sample as well to compare it to the note that was left at the scene. Good lord. Yeah. There's a sense that, like, Polanski has... He sort of skirted around it when he talks about the film, but that maybe in some ways that encouraged his, his attention to detail, his attention to watching the film, because this is a film that's very interested in the act of investigating watching. I mean, one of the big recurring motifs is eyes mm. and glasses. Like, for example, obviously, Evelyn has that imperfection in her iris that, that Jake notices. And then she's shot through that same eye at the climax, for example. Mm -hmm. You have, like, the big clues are a set of glasses in the bottom of the tide pool that are broken. Even when Gittes goes to the orange grove and he gets roughed up, tellingly, one of the lenses in his sunglass comes yeah, out, yeah. which is, is very nice. You have this recurring motif of, like, seeing... And watching and observing. And, and even though... And yet completely missing the bigger picture at the same time. That's it, exactly. Because there's a sense that the world almost doesn't make sense. And again, this is like a perfect example of it being a great 70s film. Like capturing the mood of the time very well. There's a sense that even if you are watching and observing and paying attention... There's stuff happening in the world that you don't understand and you won't understand. because and it just doesn't make any sense because it's just so much bigger than you. Yeah, it, it's like this weird sense. And it, it happened it, it, in the American psyche. I think first of all, obviously, with the Kennedy assassination. But then you had like the, the escalation of Vietnam and, and obviously and Watergate, Watergate as well. All around the same time as well, just to add it all into yeah. this heady brew, yeah. uh, which just seemed to spill out. Into in so many ways, and well, here you are have it in the film. Yeah, the well, I mean, like we're talking about the conspiracy thrillers, like the parallax, uh, the parallax view, and the Manchurian Candidate and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. the seventies was the time when I think 
Americans began to get a sense, and I'm saying just Americans, I'm fairly sure there was a strain of Irish paranoia and perhaps even British paranoia as well. We just haven't documented it as effectively. Mm. But like there was a sense in the 70s that the world didn't make sense. And like stories like Chinatown is about Gittes trying to make it make sense, like trying mm. to piece it together and figure it out. But you also, on the other hand, have like the conspiracy theories at the same time, which are their own attempts to impose narrative on a exactly. meaningless and senseless I mean, world. There were so many people at the time just, you know, confused by the world when, what, what is disco and, and when is it going to go yeah um, yeah well, this, and, and this, this, this um, movie yeah, that, that taps was, into that yeah. i like the fact that andrew's discovered that, that chinatown <laughs> is actually about the advent of disco and motown, motown music yeah there's I think so. well, that's Definitely. a connection i didn't expect that, that, is, that is the reading i like the fact that, that that's what we're going to be we'll be seeing papers on this in the future uh, citing this podcast for that unique insight. Yeah, or, or, like what the? I'm trying to think of seventies thing. Is the microwave oven? There is, and I, like <laughs> I, I really like that it's sort of it does capture that mood of of paranoia and mistrust and uncertainty and distrust like, and just yeah, everything just seems to be everything has just got so crazy that yeah. you cannot make head or tail of it. So that. By the time you roll around to not just the corruption of the city water supply, but the corruption of this family, it's a, the mind starts to boggle a yeah. little bit. I mean, obviously you find out what's happening with the Cross family, but there are even elements that, that don't necessarily like make sense or fit. Like, for example, obviously Polanski's cameo as, was it Man with Knife? Uh, yes. Uh, where, where he appears, he has a very distinctive scene. Hello, kitty cats! Yeah, um, the, the accent is... You know, I, I like his accent in it because it just adds to the otherness of the scene, yeah. of the character. Well, he's the midget, uh, <laughs> as, as Gitty's hey, refers to. Hey, Mulville, where'd you get the midget? I love... That's my terrible Nicholson. I, 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 love, I love Nicholson's original encounter with Mulville. It's like, hey, Mulville... And it's like... Uh, you got to pay a water bill. What? You don't what drink you, it. You don't you? bathe in it. <laughs> so they must have sent you a letter, but that implies you'd be able to read. <laughs> don't worry. When he was in charge of the shore police, the rum runners landed without missing a drop. He should be able to take care of your water. Right? <laughs> Two Jack Nicholson? <laughs> in the same podcast? I sense one of them may be better than the other. But like there is, and there's this sense that Gitties is a great Nicholson role in part because Nicholson, as we talked about earlier, because Nicholson just makes it. He's able to invest so much of his charm into it, even, even though, though it's, it's so atypical a Nicholson yeah. role. Like it's not what you would expect having watched the Easy Rider, where he had like that was really the role that sort of made him and established him. And in many ways, like his his role in Easy Rider, I think you can trace a lot of his persona through that. A lot of yeah, like definitely. everything that followed, and it, like he has that persona. And, What's weird is when you have an actor who goes against type, like you, you generally tend to make note of that. Like, say, you know, I've noted to, to pick an example. Is this against type? It, it well, is, that's the thing. That's what I was it starts off as very typical. I don't it's think, only. I a, don't think it really is. I think on it's, paper it's against type. It's only. It's I, only when the mystery gets deeper and he's revealed to be so way in over his head. It only then does it become against type because ordinarily he's so stylish and charismatic that yeah, you completely buy Nicholson in it. I don't. Like, well, you, you follow him on the journey, but I, I think, think that just, Nicholson, like, you buy it. It's really weird because watching him, I think that on paper it's an, it's an atypical Nicholson role. I think. think? That, I think. Yeah, as you said, Gitties is out of his depth, but also. Yeah, but like, but when you're watching the also, film, that's only revealed gradually. You still like when you see Jack Nicholson. I think from the outset you get the fact that he's he's doing infidelity cases. Like I think the fact yeah, that like he's introduced that, as, that, as like a bottom feeling that, sort of that all works for Jack Nicholson. It's. The kind of naivety and innocence that, mm. that 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 that's that's less convincing. Like it, it feels like it's only relative to the waters he <laughs> finds himself in. 
you know? Like, like he, it's, only, uh, yeah. it's only as the scale of the mystery and the scale yeah. of the crime. He's a, so a bad person in a worse world. <laughs> where, where, um, so, like, it's not, it's not like, um, say, Bill Murray is very good at, uh, at being this very, like, Sarcastic reprehensible jerk. individual who also has some... Charming. Uh, yeah, so... Um, and but like something kind of like warm and lovable and innocent somewhere uh, deep inside himself. Yeah, but uh, J- Jack Nicholson is more of the kind of um, lovable kind of kind of scamp. Like you couldn't put you couldn't put Jack Nicholson in Groundhog Day because you would believe the bit well, at the beginning. It's Groundhog Day <laughs> again. <laughs> the little bastard doesn't come out. It's Ronald it. Reagan. <laughs> Well, <laughs> he did say well enough. I love the idea that I love the idea. Now you give me the idea of Nicholson and Groundhog Day, which would be a very different movie because Nicholson could be like released without any consequences. Yeah. <laughs> Today I'm gonna yeah, kill everybody like, with a machine gun. You make me want William to be Tavane, a is that you? guy. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> Wait, that does sound more like as good as it gets to be. Honest. It is. As good People as who speak in yeah. metaphors should shampoo my crotch. <laughs> I, I really, really, actually, I really like yeah. as good as it gets. But I know, like, I know I, at the end of as good as it gets, you don't feel like he's truly <laughs> become like a, a better much better person. person. But you feel like he wants to be. I like yeah, the, exactly. That's, and isn't that all that matters? That's the goal yeah. that as good as it gets Whereas set like when it casts Nicholson. It's like we know we can't sell him as a good person, but can we sell him as somebody who maybe wants to be a good person? Yeah. Which reminds me, keep an eye out for him in the remake of Tony Erdman, which is the most redundant. Oh, God, I can't imagine. Well, we don't necessarily watch Dunkirk. Watch a foreign language film, maybe. But, um... (laughs) It is, yeah, it is. But I mean, on the other hand, I'm well, kind of glad how, to see him out of retirement. Well, it's like me going to see it. I've yeah, I don't want to read ter- a film. I've never ter- heard. I've never heard of Tony. I've never heard of Tony. Tony. It's him and uh, is it Christian Vig? Oh, I didn't. I didn't. I haven't heard who's playing his daughter. I think it's Christian Vig. Pity. My money was on Al Pacino and Rose Byrne. Ah, damn, it's so close. I like this remake bingo. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that, that's a completely different podcast. <laughs> let's let's talk about the score actually because I know that you're first of all you're a big music nerd uh, you quite like film scores and stuff like yeah, that yeah. Um, and because we talked about it on Dukirk and stuff like that but the score for Chinatown is absolutely beautiful it's Jerry Goldsmith Jerry um, Goldsmith it's one of the iconic film scores you think of Chinatown one of the first things that always always comes to mind is that score and um, you mentioned when we were talking beforehand about the the interesting backstory to that score, in that it, it's just one of those uh, one of those great stories that uh, they had a they had someone lined up to write the score. Philip Lambert, wasn't it? I believe. Thank you. I could. And not he actually he did actually write it. I believe he did. He wrote the score, and uh, here we go again. Evans rejected it. Did Evans reject it though after disastrous test screening? That's quite possible. Um, um, well, this is the, the version of the story I heard is that they they had a test screening and the audience hated the film. And Evans decided that it couldn't be the film itself. It had to be the soundtrack. That's possible. I mean, you can probably... Not that I can think of any off the top of my head. You can probably think of films where a bad score can completely undermine it. Any suggestion? Well, I mean, to, to be honest, I mean, it's very hard to think. Can you think of a great film with a terrible score? A there, great, there's the counterexample. Well, there you go. Not really. That's... It, it's tough. Like a film that you really loved that had an absolutely terrible soundtrack. Um... Gosh. Now, I, I, there's plenty I, I the other can, way around but I, cannot I can think, think of movies yeah, uh, yeah yeah I can think of movies that were far worse because of their score 
Like, like we <laughs> yeah. recently saw Emoji Movie, and, and I like the fact that yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is the only time you'll hear Chinatown in the Emoji Movie. <laughs> much the same we may have recorded in in quick succession. Yeah, <laughs> no, the I score, forget what movie we're talking. The about. score was terrible. The score was terrible, and it did make the movie worse. But it's yeah. not as if you took the score off, the movie would be better. But it, and 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 that this, this score was like like it's, in that movie it was something that's going to age it really badly. Well, it was very electronic. And in, and in this movie, stuff. it's something that made it kind of timeless. Well, well, this is the thing where you were saying about like so basically Evans decided that he wanted to scat the scrap Philip uh, yes, Lambert scat, scat uh, the scat man, <laughs> but he wanted to be but he wanted to. How are you talking? About? He, um, he wanted to scrap the get, score. Get out of this movie. <laughs> But he wanted to scrap the score, basically, and so they went to Goldsmith. I don't know what that was. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, something just comes out of you. We've been here before. Uh, yeah, uh, Goldsmith, who was uh, pretty much kind of flavor of the month, having done the likes of Planet of the Apes, Patton, Tora Tora Tora, uh, hadn't yet composed the Omen. Uh, was high points, but that was a couple of years later. But still, he had. Uh, but I mean, you know, Goldsmith you know. is generally, I think, sort of seen as an ex- relatively experimental composer in terms of the time, like his. Many of his big scores, like you think of Planet of the Apes, which is a yeah, that like is a very minimal score. <laughs> Many of his scores were very experimental. Yeah, big scores. Yeah, yeah Planet of the Apes. That's a very minimal score. It's, yeah, so, um, and even was that Alien as well? The original it, Alien was. Yeah, or? that was a few. That was of course. That later. was obviously later. But yeah, again, yeah. that's not. A, you know, it's not a. That's a, f- a creepy score, but it's not one of the big jumpy moments or anything like that. Yeah. It's just more that sensible ease that you get from Alien. Yeah. And so I wouldn't have associated him with a film like Chinatown. No, but then again, you think of this score with the just the horns and the it's it the first sound is that score, and as soon as you hear it, it just puts you in the time and the place. It is pitch perfect. I love that score. It just it completely puts you in the mind mindset of where we are and what genre you're in. In the thirties. You're in the thirties. It's a detective story. People having sex. Well, <laughs> what, but I mean, well, yeah. what you do with your Friday nights is your business. But <laughs> travels in time and looks up, looks at porn. I like the thirties. I'm watching pictures. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, a, the biggest testament to it is that any film since any detective story set in any similar time, uh, the Boris from the LA Confidential score with Gold did as well. Uh, did as well. It sounds quite similar in this way. That makes me laugh. It makes me like. The way uh, hipsters watch pornography, <laughs> like they're pulling these kind of like black and white developed photos. Oh, just come back to our earlier conversation. I just thought of one. A uh, terrible film, but with a very good score and scores that haven't sound just like this. Uh, Mark Isham score to The Black Dahlia. Again, similar kind of genre and time. And but again, time. an opposite example. It's an opposite example. Film, but a great, no, but a, yeah, but a great a, film with a terrible score. Ooh, I'll have to think. Yeah. But anyway, so yeah, it is like in terms of. It's worth talking about this because apparently Goldsmith's soundtrack at the time was unorthodox, so I believe. Uh, I know nothing about music, but it, it was one trumpet, four pianos, four harps, two percussionists, and a string section. Yeah, but the, the trumpet is the is the star, and yeah. it's. I think it's just because they elevate that one instrument to the point where you'd normally expect. You know, a thriller, it'd be more emphasis on strings and just incorporate the whole orchestra in general. Bernard Herrmann sort of stuff, even. Exactly. Or, or grand orchestra. Like, because this, this is this is grand, but it's not quite orchestral in terms of... No, appeal. again, because the... The, the trumpet is on the... The emphasis is on the trumpet. Uh, I, the trumpet just seems to encapsulate L.A. 
yeah. which brings on the idea that L.A. is the third character. In well, it, it's sort of, it, the trumpet always sounds lonely. It's like the, those wind instruments always sound lonely to me. And this is, a char- this is about characters who are very lonely. Uh, Giddies is, starts the film, but he, he's a P.I., so he's probably lonely by necessity. And, and who's ironically end, watching people have sex. Like, if you want to talk about alienated and lonely. Like, yeah, that's, hey, lay off me. At the end of the film, he's, he's ended up killing the one genuine human connection he's probably made in years, since the original Chinatown. And, and he, he returns to Chinatown to do that, actually, which, again, is another Polanski test another the script. Flow. Yeah. Yeah, because, because Polanski read the script. The original script didn't have them return to Chinatown it, No, all. there was no uh, scene set in Chinatown at all in the original script. Yeah, the title comes, obviously, from the story about, like, when he goes to Chinatown, he meddles in something that he doesn't understand, and, he ha- and it has horrific consequences. And obviously, Git has learned a lot from this because the film is about Git is investigating something he doesn't understand, meddling and causing so a great deal. So many points at which he can um, check out of it. Like as soon as as soon as um, as soon as Evelyn says, um, oh, "I'll I'm, send your check. I'll 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 drop all um, charges against you. I'll yeah. I'll, I'll I'll send you a check." Um, and and like um, I feel like of the three of us, Andrew would be the one who would survive in the world of Chinatown best because <laughs> he he'd be like, "Yep, yeah, thank you, done." Um, I'm gonna go back to taking pictures of people having sex now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Helping helping husbands uh, discover their cheating wives so that they can be, beat abuse them. them yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I mean, like one of the things I like about Chinatown is how unflinching it is in that respect, in terms of like the violence and. and this the is what you were talking about earlier about how it's just stuff, throws the haze code out the window. Yeah, stuff you couldn't do in the haze code. So, for example, you have him visiting. Um, the guy from the start of the film, and this is... Curly, and discovering that he's been beating his wife. Yeah. yeah. Um, and even stuff like the, the racist stuff about the Chinese or the, the Jewish people or stuff like that, which you'd probably get away with in a Hays Code film um, for other reasons, but like the fact that it, it lays that stuff bare and the fact yeah. that it, it acknowledges that it's, this It was is the a reality of the 30s. That's it, that this is the world the characters live in and stuff like that, which I, I really all, appreciate. All that stuff is very appropriate and, and in, in this movie. The, and and, and the, the fact that Curly is... Um, in the context of the movie, a good guy in the sense that he's helping them to to get to, away to 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 get away. But he's obviously he's not a good guy. He's a he's a reprehensible, well, terrible be being. Good, yeah. yeah. Um, but terrible being. Terrible. Like, like Andrew doesn't just judge him as a human. He judges him as an entity <laughs> in and of himself as a being. Existential sense. Because I mean, the 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 Chinatown story. That, that story actually came from Town's experience research because he knew a cop named Tony uh, S- uh, Silas mm. who had worked in there. He was a Hungarian beat cop. And he would say that basically he would he had a similar sort of experience where he would say when you were investigating crimes in Chinatown or investigating incidents in Chinatown, what you would find is that you would not understand the intricacies of what you were dealing with. So you would end up basically causing more harm than good by interfering in this situation. Mm. And so you would have that sort of impetus to, to act at a remove and to disengage and to let things carry on as they will. Yeah, and when you encourage somebody to make a statement and, and then the abuse uh, gets, gets worse gets worse, and then the, the person will no longer uh, participate in, in, in the, the prosecution. Yeah. You, you've made it worse by virtue of investigating. Yeah, yeah. And that sort of stuff. I mean, even, even I think maybe he was referring to, to cultural stuff as well, and like not understanding the workings of, of a society and a subculture and stuff like that. But like the original draft of the script didn't go anywhere near Chinatown. It was Polanski 
who basically, when he read the script, said, well, look, it's called Chinatown. You might as well have a, at least a scene in Chinatown. Yeah, and it, it is. It's one of the... It's the defining moment of the film. It obviously, truly was the Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> but to be fair, the Shawshank Redemption features a redemption in Shawshank. It's, it's, <laughs> um, but it is... It, it gives There's you... no Kane in Citizen Kane. <laughs> <laughs> um, but ironically, there is in Chinatown. But That's there, true. There is this sense that, like... And, and it is one of the great iconic closing scenes because obviously it gives you that great line forget it forget Jake. it Jake it's, it's giant do you know what movie does have a cane what movie does have a cane Robocop 2 <laughs> <laughs> cane um, sorry as opposed to Star Trek 2 which is which is <laughs> But it, it, it Philip's like, what am I? What, what, is what have you signed up for? What is, what is I do for? wonder sometimes. <laughs> but it, it does. I, and I really like that aspect of it because going to Chinatown sort of solidifies this sense, and it, it's it's closure in one way or another. It does it, and it's it literally brings Gitte's back to where he was, like mm-hmm. so, to where his original sin was, to where his original mistake was. It brings him back very literally. Uh, back to the scene of the original so it is history repeating itself which is like one of the ultimately nihilistic sort of sentiments of the movie is the sense that that we're doomed to that we're doomed to repeat the cycle so obviously the cross abused his daughter and the end of the film is like takes away his granddaughter he'll probably do it again he's probably going to do the same thing to her get screwed up in chinatown got people hurt and he does the exact same thing again and there's just this wonderfully horrible cynical view of how people are and that people are doomed to perpetually repeat their mistakes and get trapped in these cycles and that even when we discover how horrible things are we can't fix them mm. yeah because uh, there's there's a great stability to the corrupt systems in yeah. place and, and and a security in like the one thing that that, that we can rest easy is <laughs> um, is that that, that uh, it may be a corrupt system but it's yeah. still a system yeah, yeah. It, it, like, it, it, and to be fair cross is at least competent yeah i mean like he's <laughs> You, you, oh, he knows that he's doing that. Yeah, yeah. You may appear to to take things out of private hands and and put them into His own. the public good, but then you just have public institutions Aiden that are yeah that are that are yeah that are essentially in the pocket of of these industrialists and and. So you have the sense at the end of Chinatown that the best thing you can do is just sit back and let it happen. Because it will happen anyway. Because it will happen anyway, and at least that way you won't be directly responsible for getting people killed. Yeah, just I mean, stay alive and take Not... some pictures. Well, of, I, I, of I'm naked people cheering. having sex. I like that. Andrew, Andrew always looking for the silver lining. Um, but I mean, it, <laughs> oh, it is God. reassuringly, like, it commits wholeheartedly to its cynicism and its nihilism, and it's just... It's not dishonest. No, yeah. it's not. It couldn't be in It'd my be... top ten because of that. Like, really? because this movie is perfect, but, like, they... they it's I, just like, overwhelming. I, oh, yeah, like, like, as an encapsulation of... Everything uh, that is wrong with yeah, people. Yeah. So um, it's a similar thing with No Country for All Men, because I think I said with that, like, this movie's perfect. And, like, it feels like um, there should be enough perfect movies. To kind of fill the the, the two fifty. Where and, are the uh, perfect movies that celebrate it, humanity? Yeah, that's yeah exactly. What, that's, that's what Andrew wants to know. Yeah. yeah. Then the the um, the big Lebowski. <laughs> people are probably wondering, uh, Andrew, why do why do why do you want 
why do you want movies to be made that lie to people? <laughs> Should <laughs> to we be honest that. about exactly. how crap the world is? <laughs> and how, what, what, how is it that you talk see, about it on, on Was It a Rival? Where life is nothing but a wailing, <laughs> suffering shuffle. I, I, it's the same moral. Uh, We're doomed to repeat ourselves. Uh, yeah. Weeping and wailing in this valley of tears. Yeah. yeah. The, That's the human experience. Yeah. So why would you lie to me. people? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think oh, it didn't lie to people. It just put the it just put those events in the wrong order, and yeah. it was so clever as a result. There, there, there was a recent no. Twitter thread that we won't go into details on, but I think I was saying kind of like, oh, Darren, can can we just agree that all of life is terrible? I was like, no, there are specific parts of life that are terrible. I want to build a little ring fence around them. Yeah. I want to continue on. Because that, that's, that's the thing, actually. Because I'm... It's really odd. I am normally... I like films that are positive. I, we talked about this in the podcast where I much prefer, say, Spielberg over Kubrick. Even though I think Kubrick is, is as perfect a filmmaker as ever has ever existed. But this is now you're getting into kind of personal inclination. That's it, exactly. Taste. Personal taste. Yeah. Is that I, I much prefer, like, the warmth of yeah. Spielberg Which over Which is what the, the 250 is. It's very subjective. But, yeah. it, but it, it's lots of different kind of but on the other points hand, of view. Be, be, because there's room for, 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 for very, uh, like, very like you is have, that the right way to put it? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, you've got Spielberg and Kubrick on the 250 several yeah. times. Well, no, I was, was going to yeah. say, like, despite the fact that I feel that way, and despite the fact that, like, I generally tend towards Spielberg, I still think this you just is... You have to admire it as a film. No, I love this. I, yeah. I absolutely... No, it's not, like, it's not like I admire this film. I actually love this film. I think this film is amazing. It's I think phenomenal. it's beautiful, despite the fact that it is cynical. And part of me is, like, I generally don't like cynical films, but for some reason, I have a strong emotional response to this one. And I say that I would agree with you, and I say that's because it's cynicism, because the way it portrays it, the fact that it layers these themes and these narratives together so well... That ultimately, the that cynicism is it has a grounding. It's it's not unfounded and it's honest. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, other films, other films can be cynical, but it can feel cheap. This is saying this is earned. Yeah, yeah this cynical is exactly. in its cynicism. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, but th- th- this is more kind of genuine and sincere. You, you get the sense somebody cynicism. sat down carefully and yeah. thought about everything they hate about humanity and like, let's package this in a script. Because famously the script was 180 pages long. It was practically a phone book. Yeah, they would look no, down a bit. No, but nobody making the movie was just like, ah, oh, let's just cut a few corners. You know, like, <laughs> this movie doesn't have to be good. People aren't good. The yeah. world isn't good. <laughs> so why no, should this movie be good? Yeah, they, they never took that, that point of view. <laughs> Themselves. <laughs> yeah. But even in a practical sense, they didn't take that point of view. Like, yeah, there's the famous scene where um, where Giddies confronts Evelyn about the reality of who Catherine is. Where he stops her. That's Nicholson hitting Dunaway for real. Whoa. Yeah, they tried several takes. They didn't seem to work. So Dunaway just said, just hit me. Hit me. And Nicholson did. He felt really horrible about it, but it's the takes where he really hits her that's in the script, in the in the final film. That's really, really depressing. There's also the, the moment that Andrew was talking about where uh, John Huston, who's I, playing... The, I mean, I suppose the, the part of it that's depressing is is that... I understand that. So, um, if... It, it's, <laughs> he hit her. It's not like in... Um, um, it's not like in... Whatchamacallit? Um, Old thingy. Uh, yeah, thingy with with you know the thing with the guy, the guy who did yeah. the thing. Yeah. Remember in Inglorious Thingies, oh, the where last. where where um, Tarantino is like, let me just get in there and choke, and and I don't know who that is, <laughs> but, but, but it's like Christoph Waltz. Where don't worry, he chokes Diane Kruger. Acting yeah. like not actually choking <laughs> Diane Kruger. It's not it's not like 
from the the way you told the story, it's not like Jack Nicholson was like, <laughs> like when you've seen him pre- preparing in The Shining. <laughs> where before the scene, he's like, Mah! <laughs> 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 and, and then like kind of like, and then just unleashed on Faye Dunaway. It's Faye Dunaway saying, "Oh, just hit me." Yeah, like, she actually so, it was her yeah, idea. I mean, it, it, we, I, 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 I don't see how we can get too <laughs> depressed about it. Aside from like finding any context of of a woman being hit distasteful, or anybody it, being hit, yeah, yeah. The, the fact as well that Jack Nicholson felt terrible about it, it yeah. kind of reminds me of Roger Moore. <laughs> <laughs> when and I didn't think I would put those two people together in Bond movies. A, a recurring behind the scenes theme is Roger Moore wanting the Roger Moore Bond movies be even more light oh, which frivolous. is really which is really and, and not wanting to be mean in them like not wanting oh. to not wanting to push a citron over the edge of the cliff <laughs> that's or the best not, scene not, in all of Roger Moore's yeah, Bond films or not wanting to like slap the tie like to to let the man uh, plunge to his death and and there's a moment as well where where he slaps well, there's a moment in like the man with the golden gun where he threatens to break um, a woman's arm. It is the man with the golden gun where where where, yeah. where he threatens to break a break a woman's arm and then sleeps with her because um, that's super classy. Uh, man with the golden gun is a few Gene features. He's got a powerful weapon. That's not one of them. <laughs> that's that, that's a million a shot. That's one of the worst worst songs. But anyway, so you were saying anyway, the you most were saying more Bond films. The View to a Kill. The assassination the second to none. We're never getting okay. yeah, no. no, because the the um, but in um, in, in a, a view, a view to a kill. He Zorn, your men are down there. He sits, he sits on a chair with 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 a shotgun, like while 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 she's sleeping, and and there's there's no kind of like like the, it's it's so un. James Bond and very un Sean Connery, like for or very un Roger Moore. Well, that's that, that's how I see the the James Bond that Roger Moore would have would have preferred. And I was about Chinatown. I, yes, <laughs> <laughs> I was really proud of myself um, when we were watching the movie to realize it's John Huston saying to Jack Nicholson, um, "Have you slept with her?" And he's talking about his, his daughter. daughter in the movie. But Jack Nicholson is sleeping with his actual daughter. Angelica in real life. Angelica used to. Probably sort of wonders because is that because I I wondered that because we talked earlier when we talked about how it presents Los Angeles and how it's a movie about Los Angeles that's not about Hollywood. Yeah. And part of me is sort of wondering is there a bit of Chinatown that maybe is a little bit about Hollywood? So obviously casting John Huston, for example. I suppose the casting in the most obvious way will be about the. And obviously Polanski himself, for example. But I mean, obviously that reference to sleeping with his daughter and stuff like that. But even like. Because incest is a theme that you see a bit um, in mm-hmm. a lot of Hollywood films. Like, for example, we were talking earlier about was it uh, Mass Stars, Stars, which is, is a, very, which is all about that, really. Yeah, and because it, it, it is this the metaphor of free willy. Yeah, it's it's all in there, but it's basically this metaphor of show business as of a being sort of corrupting and self-loving and and, and decaying and increpid and and sort of stuff. And I do wonder if there's an element of that because. Obviously, we talked about how this was Polanski's first film coming back to Los Angeles after, Absolutely. and also his last film, um, because of, of the horrible in the US, because of everything that happened afterwards. But I do wonder if there's an element of that to it, like that if he came back to Los Angeles in some ways, like his association with the place, maybe his contempt for the place. Like if you think watching the film that there is a vibe of that, that it is sort of like a... I suppose so. And 
like you talk about uh, the casting there, even Captain Nicholson with all his his charm and his just that those masculine wiles and that manic grin. Like you're talking about a you're talking about a character who is always poking his nose into things. He's a detective, and you know you can see that in a very kind of phallic way almost. And what happens most of the film, he spends with a cut on it and a big plaster, completely undermining his abilities as a detective, as any other, and any other attributes you care to give him, which just seems to, again, to work against what you would think of as a Jack Nicholson character. Yeah, yeah I mean, you even, look at him and you think, you mustn't be very good at exactly what you do. Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, even stuff like, yeah, as you mentioned there, the, the act of watching as well is, is very much important. And thing, people viewing life through lenses and images as well. So that's sort of like when I was watching this time, because obviously it's a great film that when you watch... You can unpack and unspool, and you sort of discover new things. I think every viewing, yeah. And I was sort of wondering this time if there was an element of that to it. If it felt like this was Polanski, sort of like in some ways indicting, because like we talk about Los Angeles and how there are a few films to deal with Los Angeles that don't deal with Hollywood. Mm. I was sort of wondering, is there a sense that every film about Los Angeles is in some way a film about Hollywood? Well, I like the what I like about this one is that it doesn't have to be about Hollywood, but it does that kind of uh, that through line and that theme that these films usually do of the idea of illusion versus reality yeah. and that all throughout the film up until the big reveal Evelyn is trying to maintain this uh, pretense of you know being a happy family, a happy family mm. and that you know, everything was okay at the core of it all when of course it clearly isn't the apple core if you will uh-huh. which is, is a nice little thing and obviously it turns out to be and one of those great details that it's a it's a misheard word referring to the the boat club I, um, I wonder, but, but it, I wonder it also if she is happy though because I, I feel like the I feel like she some point feels before before obviously um, her husband is murdered I think she feels that she's estranged from her father which is what she wants and she has a relationship with 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 her daughter, and that her her husband, husband understands has, that and, and supports and that, it, and yeah. has rescued her, rescued both of her them. from yeah rescued both of them from her father. Now we find out that that they um, have been speaking that Noah and name I can't ever remember Moray Moray have 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 well they had the big argument yeah yeah which 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 I guess under, kind of undermines that I think it's. Well, I mean, they uh, were business partners. They yeah. use a connection. And obviously Cross comes to the house because he murders Mulray there. Yeah, like yeah. There's all, everybody is going connected. To, to see if you had any sugar and to murder you. <laughs> um, <laughs> By sugar, I mean my daughter. Yeah. They, oh, you went there. Oh, God. It, it, Andrew made it, not it you. from me. Yeah. The, I think it was interesting for for someone who really didn't want to go to, to L.A. to make this movie. He made a very good L.A. movie. Um, but it's a very good LA movie because it's so bleak and cynical about yeah. Los Angeles. Well, usually it takes a, it takes an outsider's eye to reveal that. Yeah, yeah. it's true. I mean, well, that's the argument about like many because we, we talked and maybe it's a nice bookend to the podcast where we talked about the start about how bringing in outside voices for the Hollywood new wave and stuff like that. Like yeah. many of the most influential individuals were outsiders. Like for example, when they're doing Bonnie and Clyde, which many regards having kickstarted in the movie, they looked at Goddard and they looked at Truffaut. Yeah. And they uh, rejected them. They did reject them, but there's that sense of like, having but it's still, it, they still look to them for the inspiration for the yeah. kind of film they wanted to make. Yeah. I think Polanski should be allowed to return to LA, specifically San Quentin. Uh, yes. Yeah, so he can stand trial. for what he's I, done, to I, be absolutely I think that most people would agree with that, yeah. but as far as Chinatown goes, again, there you have it. You look at any other image of L.A., especially if it's one that's been made by an, an Angelino, 
and there might be a certain amount of cynicism and darkness to it, but it'll never match this. Yeah. No. All right. Well, with that in mind, I think we've talked enough about the film. Unless there's anything else that anybody else wants to talk about or that we've missed or glossed over. Um, all I can say is at this point, especially if you've been listening to us and haven't watched it, watch it. Or if you have watched it, it's probably Re-watch worth watching it? again. Like, yeah. I mean, any excuse to do it. Um, Absolutely. And I mean, the soundtrack, the, the Goldsmith soundtrack as well, was recently remastered by Douglas Fake, actually, which is mm. a great name. But he, he remastered because the master tapes were missing. So we yeah. so had to scrap it together. So that's available now as well. If you and also it. available, I believe, is the original score. Yeah. Uh, it's it? own separate release. But um, Philip... Beg your pardon? Philip Lambros. Oh, thank Phil- you. Philip Lambro. Philip Lambro. Podcast listeners didn't didn't get to see the flourish on, on Darren's face as he said Lambro. He kind of went <laughs> up and down. He did. <laughs> it's just a name that you've got to love. But anyway, but, so that, but Lambro's original score is Lambro's original score is apparently available. Uh, yeah. Have you listened to it? No, but do you uh, want to? I wouldn't mind. Oh. It's uh, apparently he couldn't release it with the Chinatown name, so I think it's called Los Angeles, nineteen thirty-seven. Ah, very pointed. And when I get home, I am looking for that Chinatown with a hyphen this time. Something like that. All right, well, I think that anything left to do then is to pick the movie that we're going to talk about next week. And Korean Neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> do you, how do we do this? Do you have a random number generator? We do indeed. We have a random number generator. Hold on, let me, let me just pull the, the, the... Just get it warmed up there. Just, yeah, just configure I'm, it properly. I'm just going to pull the curtain now. Well, here's the thing, Phil. You get to make a choice. Ooh. Now, keep in mind that Andrew and I have recently covered both the Emoji Movie and Crossover from the bottom 100. So you get to decide... Do you want to add the bottom 100 to the mix, or are you happy to leave us with the top 250 movies of all time? Do you think we suffered enough, or do you want us to suffer more? I always want to see people suffer more, but right. in this case, I think I'll leave it. You may also I'll... suffer from having to listen. Uh, <laughs> I think we'll leave it at the top 250 for the moment. You recently Keep the listened to Kellogg I did. <laughs> and considering I've never seen the film, and never will, I will... Uh... <laughs> all right, yeah. then. Let's so... stand back. Roll, roll it there, Phil. Phil is, is approaching the button. You know what's going to happen now, of course. I'm going to pick a film you've already done. If, if, like, if, if, Don't be afraid to crank it. You, may you look to... at this indicator on the, on the uh, random number generator. <laughs> and we have landed on number 152, Buster Keaton's The General. Fantastic. Fantastic. I'm actually really looking forward to it. Is this the oldest movie? We've, we've done so far. Yes, it is. Yeah. So with that in mind, we may actually listen to the trailer, although it being a silent film, um, <laughs> <I don't> it, <laughs> it probably won't sound as good to the audience listening at home.
But, uh, so Phil, uh, where can we find you online? If... Be honest, you can't really anymore. See, it's like, Phil is like the, Phil is like the hipster sort of. Oh, I'm, get, I'm getting way him. ahead of the hipsters. I'm, I mean, I, Twitter, Twitter to me is gone. So, you know, um, yeah. Um, I'll well, t- we can find your reviews up on You can find my reviews at scanon.com where I was a contributor and maybe again someday. We shall see. And, and hopefully we'll have you back on the podcast. Oh, absolutely. Because where I can continue to pretend to know stuff. Well, you can continue. You did a very relative... good job of pretending. Yeah, well, I was very convinced as well. I, Thanks. I didn't this read, wasn't I didn't a Roman read too closely your notes, but it, it appeared that you had notes. Well, again, that was just that was just sheer luck. This wasn't <laughs> a Roman Polanski film at all. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, so thank you very much. You can follow Andrew online at Twitter at uh, a q u i n n i u q a. Um, if if but if if if, if you don't go looking for me, I'll. I can go looking for you anyway. That's uh, a promise, not a threat. Yeah. Andrew's interest in long lens photography is famous from this podcast. Follow, follow you on, on Twitter and other mediums. And um, in real life too, if you're lucky. Um, you can follow myself at Darren underscore Mooney. You can listen to the podcast at the 250. You can find us on Stitcher and on iTunes. Um, and take care. And we'll be seeing the general next week or the week after. Thank you very much, guys. Bye. Bye.